Hello, welcome back to Scripture Central. I'm Lynn Hilton Wilson, and I'm thrilled to be talking about the Epistles of Peter today. This is one of my favorite two books in the Epistles, and Peter's message is how to become holy, and it just runs from the beginning to the end. The two books, though, are very different. We see the first book of Peter having 12 to 18 Old Testament citations, depending on how you count them, whereas the second one just has one. But both of the books are written from a prison setting, and it's the last time of Peter's life. And so the second book has a very Old Testament, Last Testament feel. Just to refresh your memory, if you go back to the book of Acts, these two prison letters come after the end of the book of Acts. The book of Acts never talks about Peter's imprisonment. You know, we get Paul in prison under Nero, and then it ends. So we never hear about Paul's second imprisonment or um, Peter's imprisonment. But we assume that it is occurring before AD 68, because that's when Nero is killed. So we have that time period. Nero served as an emperor from AD 54 to 68. So we assume that these letters are written during this period of time, but certainly before 68, because Nero is the one who kills and imprisons Peter. And the letters appear to come from that period of time. The first epistle is co-authored by Silas. Now, we don't learn about his name until chapter 5, and it's the whole Roman name, Silvanius, but he is the translator or the transcriber, or he's taking this fisherman's best language and putting it into polished, beautiful Greek. Silas is mentioned 34 times in the New Testament. Silas is now a companion with Peter in prison in Rome, and he takes this fisherman's... um, Aramaic or whatever language Peter is communicating in and polishes up and puts it in a beautiful Greek so that the letter can be translated to the language that the Galatians and the people in Asia Minor are able to understand. And in this beautiful translation, we're told that he compiles it and he edits this first letter. We're also told that he is writing to the saints in Pontius, Galatia, and Asia Minor. So this area of of modern-day Turkey is all in, in this beautiful group. Just to remind you a little bit more about Silas, we're told in that he was involved in the Jerusalem Council, that he traveled not only with Paul and Barnabas to Antioch, that's all in Acts chapter 15, but he was also Paul's companion on that second mission. He was Paul's scribe for first and second Thessalonians. And he was Paul's messenger in 2 Corinthians. So we have a lot of information on Silas. Let's jump into the letter of 1 Peter. The theme is how to become holy. And he discusses our trials and the suffering and how they can be used to develop greater faith and holiness. He also has uh, references back to many of the prophecies that our Lord gave. He talks about following the Savior's example, even in persecution. And then he ends in chapter 5 with this Christian code of conduct. I have an outline of 1 Peter, both on my slides and on my handouts. If you'd like to get them, they're usually attached to the video, or you can go back to our website. Go back to Scripture Central or Book of Mormon Central and click the button for the archives or the Come Follow Me, and you can find all my handouts there. But the outline starts out with a greeting and then a beautiful hymn. And then in chapter 1, verse 13, he talks about this new chosen Israelite identity. In chapter 2, he focuses on the submission to authority. And then starting in chapter 3, verse 8, he talks about that suffering can become a means of being a holy witness. 
And then in chapter four, starting about verse 12, he talks about the need to persevere even during persecution. And then chapter five is this household code, the responsibilities for men. Then his final greetings finish up chapter five. So he starts out in verse one, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered abroad. You know, and then he, but it's interesting that he uses the King James translates strangers when actually it refers to foreigners or those who are outside of, of Jerusalem. But remember, he's in Rome right now. He is a stranger in Rome, but usually we don't refer to our Christians as strangers. We refer to them as our fellow brothers and sisters, but I think he's feeling like a stranger in a strange place, and he realizes that Christians are usually strangers in a strange place because we are following a different God. We are worshiping um, the Almighty, the Jehovah, and we don't fit into the Greco-Roman culture uh, anymore. Verse 2 in the King James Version starts out, to the elect according to the foreknowledge of God. I want to also read the BSB here. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, and sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. Now, this idea of being elect and having a foreknowledge of God, we when we read this, we usually read the King James just in the context of the restoration. But remember, the early Protestants felt very strongly about the Calvinistic idea that there were some people who were born to election and some people who were born to damnation, and there was not human agency. God had complete control. These ideas are not just in the Protestant faith, as I mentioned earlier in other lectures. These ideas come clear back from the time of St. Augustine in the fourth century, and, and they were completely denounced in, by the Restoration, by Joseph. The Lord taught Joseph that our actions matter, that our faith matters, our belief matters, and we can choose to be chosen. Those are my own words, but the idea that is expressed in section 121, while Joseph is in Liberty Jail, starting about in verse 34 to 43, you know, the Lord teaches Joseph that many are called and few are chosen. And why are they not chosen? Because they hearken not to the councils. You know, they, they've forgotten that the priesthood and things only work with our own choice and our own kindness and gentleness and meekness unfeigned. You know, we can choose. So the foreordination, we believe, occurred in a pre-mortal existence. And he's repeating that here. If you want to learn more about that, that's in Abraham chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. The next little section, starting in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to verse 12, is this beautiful hymn. And it speaks of God's lively hope. It reads in the BSB translation, he, meaning the Lord, has given us new birth into the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I love this idea that our hope is born again, that if we believe in Christ, if we have a witness that the Savior lives, if the Spirit can testify to us that Jesus is our Redeemer, then that hope can give us not only a new birth, but it can be born again in realizing that we can have peace and joy in our life. Verse four continues on in this hymn, to an inheritance incorruptible. This is the hope that we're believing in and undefiable and that fadeth not away and it is reserved in heaven for you. As we move on to verse six, the King James uses the funny words of season of heaviness and temptations. And so I'd like to read it from the BSB. In this, you greatly rejoice, though for now, for a little while, 
you may have had to suffer grief in various trials. I just want to put you in perspective this time. Nero is really persecuting the Christians, and it's still in in various locations, but we are seeing a lot more empire-wide persecution under the time of Nero. Remember, he blames them on the fire in Jerusalem that he started so that he could build a bigger palace. You know, They're just an easy scapegoat. And I feel like that's the way it is right now with Christianity. And that's the way it is with members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We have a lot of people attacking us. That's how it was at the time of the New Testament. And I feel like Paul's message to the early Christians is a message for us right now. This is very applicable to us right now. And he's asking us to find strength during these times of grief and trials and realize that those trials can actually strengthen our testimony and strengthen our hope as we go to the Lord. In fact, he says in verse seven, the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold, talking about being tried with fire, trying to you know purify this metal and get out the impurities. He says, it might be found unto praise and honor and glory of the appearing of Jesus. The NIV uses a different translation. It says, You are of greater worth than gold. I just love this imagery of the refiner's fire. And I want to just remind you that I have said before, I am so grateful I went through my periods of chemotherapy, um, my four different um, cancer tumors, and the way that they have blessed me to rely more on my Savior. Peter uses this analogy because the saints were being persecuted and it wasn't just a little verbal stuff online or a few pulling people out of the church. This was putting the Christians before the lions. You know, the persecution there was a matter of life and death. The next section in 1 Peter, starting in verse 13 to 25, talks about a new chosen Israelite. And this is the way we become holy. And remember the word holiness in Latin is sanctus, the sanctification. In both Greek and the early um, words, we find a lot of overlap in some of these ideas of becoming holy, becoming sanctified. He says in verse 15 in the BSP that just as he, meaning our Lord, who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. I love this idea in all that we do. Now, in the King James, it says in your conversations. But by the time the King James translators were working on these words, conversation meant your daily walk of life, everything you're doing. Be holy, not just in the things that come out of your mouth, but what you're doing. How are you spending your time? Are you spending your free time in... in, in things that take you away from the spirit, like gambling and, and pornography and, and, and lying and, and excessive travel and pleasure and leisure? Or are you spending your time serving and building the kingdom of God? He says in this beautiful section, verses 17 and 19, I'd like to read it from the NIV translation. Since you call on a father who judges, live in reverent fear. For you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish. Peter knows what the Savior went through. He was there in Gethsemane. He heard about it from the cross. He feels responsible for part of that suffering because he was immortal and he made mistakes. And so he's just reminding us of how precious that redemptive power was. And he's begging on us to live in a reverent manner. He continues on in verse 22, still in this section about becoming holy. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, 
so that you have sincere love for each other. Love one another deeply from the heart. So he's saying, once you've been purified by the Savior, share that joy. Share the love you feel from the Lord with others. This is the NIV translation, and I just really appreciate this emphasis on obeying the truth. We get a lot of sentences on obeying, but Peter emphasized the truth a lot, and he feels that it's black and white. Even though he lives in a world where there's a lot of gray and a lot of changes, he emphasizes the truth. And he goes back to this idea of being born again in verse 23. Having been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable by the living and abiding word of God. That's the Berean literal Bible. This is a very good translation if you want an excellent literal translation that uses more modern vocabulary. We live in a time where there is so much perishable, but he's saying that if we can abide the word of God, you know, the mountains will perish as we're seeing more and more fires and natural disasters in our world. All of the earth will perish, but the human soul will not. It will live forever. And he's asking us to realize that being born again will prepare the way for this eternal body and humanity to live. Now, even though he mentions that we will last forever, our human body will not. He says in verse 24 and 25, still in chapter one, in the NIV translation, all people are like grass and the grass withers and flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So hold on to the words of the scriptures, study the scriptures. I hope that these these, um, wonderful opportunities with Come Follow Me just motivate greater scripture study. Peter now turns to five sins and he's asking them to get rid of these sins. He says in chapter two, verse one, lay aside all malice or wickedness, all deceit. And that means guile or treachery in other translations, all hypocrisy. I also add in other translations that refer to that as partiality. He says, get rid of your envy and your jealousy. Get rid of your slander. And slander is sometimes translated evil speaking. But he wants you to get rid of these so that you can be born again. Chapter 2, verse 2 reads in the BSB, like newborn babes, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. You know, the purity of being fed by the Lord's milk and allow us to grow from childhood into adulthood with our spirituality takes us from 1 Peter to 2 Peter. And he asks us now to be purified and become holy. And then in 2 Peter, he takes it to another higher level. But in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, verse 4 to 10, he talks about this beautiful image of a rock. And remember what a rock meant to Peter. This is so significant to me because Peter had received the nickname from the Lord as Rocky. You know, he became the stone, Kephas. His name is Simon. He's named after one of the 12 tribes of Israel, but the Lord referred to him with this nickname of Rock. And he says here in chapter two, verse four, and I'm gonna read from the NIV. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God, and precious to him. So he's referring to Christ as the stone, not himself. He's referring to our savior to build our foundation on him. He continues on in verse five, again, within the NIV. You also, like living stones, are being built unto a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. 
He's asking us to become a chosen people. We have to choose to be chosen, as I mentioned earlier. And this is so significant because Peter has had years and years to think about what that meant when the Savior chose to call him this. And our prophet has also chosen to speak on this. In October of 2019, he said, Every woman and every man who makes covenants with God and keeps those covenants and who participates worthily in priesthood ordinances has direct access to the power of God. Those who are endowed in the house of the Lord receive a gift of God's priesthood power by virtue of the covenant, along with a gift of knowledge to know how to draw upon that power. I was fascinated with how Peter refers to this stone in Zion in verse 6. And then again, in verse 7, he talks about the strong builders reject the cornerstone. And in verse 8, the stone that causes people to stumble, all of them are quoting other Old Testament scriptures. So verse 6 is citing Isaiah 26, 16. Verse 7 is reciting Psalms 118, verse 22. And then chapter 8 is Isaiah 8, 14. So I've got a chart how they're all written down and you can see the Isaiah portions and the Psalms portions and how they beautifully overlap. Peter loved and knew the Old Testament. All the early young Hebrew scholars, the young Jewish boys were invited to start studying their scriptures and reading them by age five at the synagogue. And if your parents had enough money that they didn't need you to be sold into slavery or working for them on the farm or in the fishermen's, as it was in the case of Peter's family, this is where they went. Verse nine continues on. Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. And then he skips down. He's talking about God. He says, he has called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. And this beautiful hope that we can follow through as a peculiar people. Sometimes I've heard my students say things like, I don't want to stand out. I don't want to be so different. I just want to be like everybody else. That's not what we're called to. We are called to be a chosen generation. We are needing to stand out as someone different, as a disciple of Jesus Christ. We don't look like everyone else. We are peculiar. But when we have God's love with us, we can be peculiar as an ambassador for goodness, as an ambassador for love and hope and faith and honesty. He continues on in verse 11. Dearly beloved, and remember, he uses that word 10 times in this epistle. He loves calling them beloved. These are his children. He's the head of the church. He loves them. I beseech you, abstain from fleshy lusts, which war against the soul, having your conversation honest. Remember, in King James, conversation is your whole walks of life. He's begging them to be honest in everything they do. Be completely noble and get rid of all this overeating and overindulgence in your in your um, hormones and overindulgence in your uh, things that are wrong. He's saying your fleshy lusts is a good translation, I think, there. And then he goes to talk from verses 11 and 12 in 1 Peter chapter 2 about the unbelievers. And he begs them, submit yourself. Now, in King James, it says, submit yourself to every ordinance. But this is not ordinance as we translate it. Remember, this is translated during by Puritans, by people who did not want to follow the Catholic uh, seven sacraments. They were trying to divorce themselves of ordinances. So they're using the word ordinance in a different way. They're using it as a authority. They use it as human teachers. So I'm going to read from the NIV instead. 
these human authorities, whether to the emperor or the supreme authority, for it is God that will, by doing good, he should silence the ignorant. When we refer to Peter being imprisoned, this is very significant now. He's asking you to obey your policemen, you know, obey the governing bodies of authority wherever you live, even though he is in prison. I think this is quite significant. Moving on in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at about verse 16 to verse 20, he's being talking about servants and masters. And I'll read from the NIV, starting right at verse 16 and 17. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and honor the emperor. Now, remember the word slave and servant is the same word. And that as disciples of Christ, we are to become servants of God. We are to do his bidding. We are to bow before our God as before a king. And then he goes on in verse 18 to talk about people who are serving as servants and slaves. As I mentioned before, think of this more as an indentured servant. Remember the Romans released them at age 30. The Jews released them after seven years of, of servitude. And he's begging these masters and servants to have no violence. He says in the BSB translation of verse 18, servants, submit yourself to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but even to those who are unreasonable. He's saying, if this is your job right now, if this is what you're supposed to be doing, please stay away from violence. Try to submit. And remember the word submit in a non-military setting means voluntarily cooperate. He's not saying anything that would be said in our generation but where one half of the big cities are serving under servitude, he's saying, let's stop the violence. He now moves in chapter three to advice for wives and husbands. And it's specifically to those women who are converted to Christianity, but their husbands have not. I'd like to read from a new translation that's been in progress for almost 30 years now. It's called the BYU New Testament Commentary Series, and you can get it online at the BYU Studies, or you can buy it online as well. But I love these translations. Every one of them are done by people who are enriched with the lessons of the Restoration. And then they go back to the Greek text. And with a lot of help from lexicons and other translations, they come up with a translation that is consistent with the teachings of the Restoration. And I'd like to read starting in verse 1. Likewise, wives, defer to your own husbands, so that if they disobey the word, they may be attracted back by the conduct of the wives without a word. So this Greek word, hypotosis, is used in the King James as be in subjection. In the NIV, it's to submit, but it's the same word that I just mentioned about the slaves. It means voluntarily cooperate, share the burden, carry it together, as we've talked about in the past in the Pauline epistles. But here he's saying, wives, if, you're, if your spouse doesn't believe, be so willing to work with him that he maybe can be won back. And Paul uses the same language in his household codes as well. Verse three to four, I'd like to read in the Joseph Smith translation. He's talking to the women and he says, let your adorning be not that of outward adorning. He said, stop wasting your time with hairstyles and makeup and clothing. He says, skipping down a little bit, let it be the hidden meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God, a great price. He said, stop 
spending hours a day on yourself. A little time is great. You want to look the best you can, but instead give your time to things that matter more, that will provide light in your eyes. Prioritize your time with God on your knees, in your scriptures, serving others in the temple. If you took your time there and praised it as well, you would be spending it to beautify yourself in the things that adorn yourself as God wants you to. Continuing on in verse five and six, I'm going to read back from this BYU new rendition. Women of the covenant, those who have hope in God, adorn themselves supporting their husbands. And then he gives the example of Sarah. Sarah was obedient to Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become your daughters doing good works and not fearing without any anxiety. Now, this is novel in that society. Remember, women lived in great anxiety. They were constantly under the threat of being divorced. I mentioned before, in the Greco-Roman world, men and women had about four or five divorces each. And in the Judaic world, it was less than that. But the women lived in total fear. It was, it was a terribly unhealthy relationship when you go in back and read the records of the time period. And so he's saying, daughters, do your good works without fear, without anxiety. In a Christian marriage, we should not have an overbearing authority. We should have cooperation and love on both the men and the women working in harmony. Continuing on in that same BYU translation, it says, likewise, husbands live together with your family, according to the revelation, awarding honor to your wife, respecting her delicate feminine body, and recognizing that you and she will be joint heirs of the blessings of life. Now, if you go back to the King James there, that delicate feminine body is the vessel. And the King James word there has a metaphorical meaning as well, or the Greek word has this meaning that means it's a person of quality, a chosen instrument. It's equipped or an apparatus. Those are all coming from the Strong's translation or Greek translations from the lexicons of this great word that is translated as the weaker vessel, which I don't like that translation, although I'm much weaker than my husband. Some women are stronger, so I don't want to put that in. And I don't want to have any sense that was part of the culture of the fact that women were weaker mentally. They were weaker physically. They were weaker emotionally. I don't want any of that. And I don't think Peter wanted any of that. He's not saying that. He's using this word in its metaphorical meaning, a person of quality. That's what he's trying to communicate here. And he's also saying that because they're going to be joint heirs. And he goes on and talks a lot about that in the next letter. But I want to just let you know that this word vessel is used all over the New Testament, but it's, it's never used in the manner that it is here where it says a weaker vessel. Go back and look at Mark chapter 11. These are all in my handout, Luke 8, Acts 9 and 10 and 1 Thessalonians and 2 Timothy. They're all over the place and they're never used this way. I, I think we could understand the Greek word better if we saw how it was used in the New Testament by the apostolic church. Continuing on in chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, halfway down through verse 7, it says, that your prayers be not hindered. Now, it's also their prayers be not blocked. You know, we've got to treat each other with respect and love or else you're not going to be able to feel the Spirit of the Lord. Joseph Smith learned that when he was in the translation process of the Book of Mormon. Do you remember? He had, a, he had a discussion that wasn't filled with harmony, and he couldn't translate. And he had to go and apologize and repent um, and work it out with Emma and the Lord. And then he came back, and the Spirit was able to return. So our prayers will be blocked if we have animosity in our relationships. He says, finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion, 
you know, this is part of the law of consecration. This is part of our sacrifice that we become unified in our love for God and for each other. Verse 8 to 12 has this Christian conduct, and he reviews it all here together, talking about the unity that's needed. And he also says, suffer even while you're doing good. He asks them, I'm just going to review chapters 3, verses 8 to 12. Become like-minded, sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but repay evil with blessings. And then he starts talking about persecutions. The evil with blessings is also something the Savior said. He said, when you're persecuted, pray for those who are persecuting you. That's the Sermon on the Mount. And here, Peter picks up on that theme in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 14. And again, I'm reading from the BYU New Testament commentary, New Rendition, NR is how they abbreviate it. And who can really harm you if you are zealous for the good? But if you even suffer on account of righteousness, you will be blessed. Now, a lot of people um, have to suffer for sins that they own, they did themselves. But if you're suffering from something good that you do, you will be rewarded by God. It's great promise. Referring back to the Lord at the time when he was in the tomb and his spirit went to the spirit world, it says in chapter 3, verse 19 to 21, he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometimes were disobedient. And then skipping down a little bit to verse 20 and 21, and in the days of Noah, even baptism doth not also save us, he refers to those that were in, died when the flood came to the earth and those that had died since that time now have the opportunity to hear the gospel because Christ organized missionary work. And we learn a lot more about this because section 138 in the Doctrine and Covenants, when a prophet of the Lord, Joseph Fielding Smith, was praying about this and received a beautiful vision. And he was in a time of great sorrow. His son had died of the Spanish influenza. The end of World War I had brought many, many deaths. And then the plague that affected the world brought even more. And so he's praying about this. And he says, as I pondered over these things, which were written, he's talking about these verses in Peter, the eyes of my understanding were opened and the spirit of the Lord rested upon me. And I saw the hosts of the dead gathered together in one place. And all these had departed the mortal life, firm in the hope of the glorious resurrection. I beheld, I'm skipping ahead a little bit down to verse 16. I beheld that they were filled with the joy and gladness and were rejoicing together because the day of their deliverance was at hand. Once the Savior was going to die, they were going to be able to be resurrected again and repent and go through that process. He continues on in verse 18. While this vast multitude waited and conversed, rejoicing in the hour of their deliverance from the chains of death, the Son of God approached, declaring liberty to the captives who had been faithful. This great vision opened up to our prophet is the reality of all of us. All of us who depart from the way will have an opportunity to repent and return to our God, whether on this side of the veil or the other, we will have another chance. Chapter four now turns with a lot of Joseph Smith translations. Five out of the eight verses in chapter four have Joseph Smith translations. So I'd like to read this one to you. Chapter four, verse one with the JST changes. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For you who have suffered in the flesh should cease from sin. 
Now, this parallels a little bit about something that Paul mentioned, or at least is recorded in the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 8, that when we have suffered, we might stop our sinning. Use this as a time of repentance. Use this as a time of changing and cleansing so that we can move forward with armed with the love of God. Verse 6 reads, For for this cause was the gospel preached to them which are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh and live according to God in the spirit. This idea of Christ going to the spirit world is in both chapter 3 and 4, and yet it's not understood by anyone else as it is by Latter-day Saints because of section 138. Just feel we are so blessed to understand the Bible in different ways. The Old Testament especially is changed by our understanding of the restoration. I just thank my Lord every day that I open my scriptures that I can look at footnotes in the restoration that will amplify the Old Testament and the New Testament and give me greater understanding. The rest of Christianity doesn't have these things. We are so blessed to have them. And I'll go back to section 138 and read to you something about that in verse 30. From among the righteous, he organized his forces and appointed messengers clothed with power and authority and commissioned that they go forth and carry the light to the gospel to them who were in darkness. So Jesus did not go to the wicked. He went to the righteous. He went to those who had died before his resurrection, who are waiting for their resurrection, organized them, taught them, and they went down and taught the others. First Peter chapter four, verse seven reads, the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober, watch and pray. Now sober doesn't just mean not drunk. It means a clarity of thought, focused thought, focused on God's thought. And I think it's so significant that he says, watch and pray. Do you remember when Peter was told to watch and pray by the Lord? Do you remember the Garden of Gethsemane when Peter, James and John, the Lord begged them to stay awake and watch and pray? And Peter is now here asking the saints to do the same with the same intensity that he wished that he could have watched and prayed for our Savior. He's begging the saints now. It's just as important now. Watch and pray so that the adversary does not overtake you. If you are not striving every day, every hour, every minute to have the Spirit with you, you may lose the opportunity to hear the Word of God and to stay connected to the iron rod. I'd like to read verse eight again in the Joseph Smith translation. I'm still in chapter four. Above all things, have fervent charity, for charity preventeth a multitude of sins. Now, this was a little bit surprising to me because before it says charity covereth a multitude of sins. So I thought, okay, if I can love someone, I'm getting off some of my sins. But that's not what the Lord intended. That's not even what Peter said, according to the Joseph Smith translation. He said, if you have charity, if you have love, if you've gotten rid of your pride and you've gotten rid of your animosity and anxiousness around other people, that is going to prevent other sins. If we can look at people without judging them, we will be prevented from sinning. Chapter 4, verse 12 continues on. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is in you. So you don't ask, why me, when trials come, as the brethren have taught us over and over ask, why not me? This is part of life and trials are to cleanse us. I love what he says in verse 13 of chapter four, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings. He skips ahead a little bit and he says, be glad. So when we have the opportunity to suffer for when we're doing right, we are walking where Jesus walked. 
and we can be glad. Remember the Lord told the apostles at the Last Supper, right after he announced he's going to die, or after he announced he's going to suffer, be of good cheer. And Paul and Peter have both repeated that statement to the early Christians. Moving on now to chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, he says, If any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, for judgment must begin at the house of God. So we will be purified. Christians will have to suffer. We need to be sanctified. We need to change. We need to um, burn out our dross, as it were, so that the Lord can have a pure, holy people. Moving into chapter 5 now, verses 1 and 3, starts out with, The elders are going to be feeding the flock, and I'll skip ahead a little bit, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre. You know, I don't want you working for money, but of a ready mind and neither as being lords, meaning overlords, don't be too demanding here. And then finishing up in verse three, the very end, but being in samples to the flock. I'll continue on in verse five. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves. And remember that word means voluntarily cooperate, carry the burden, take callings, take responsibilities. He says, submit yourself to the elder, be clothed with humility for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Now it says, in other words, God opposes instead of resisteth. But this is just a translation to remind us that we all need to share the same burden. And if our leaders are doing something that makes us mad, be patient, be gentle, carry the burden, follow the leader. And over time, things will be perfected. We're a human organization, but if we cooperate, we can make the changes that we all need and that we all hope for. But if we fight against our leaders, the changes are going to not happen as readily than if we work with them. Chapter 5, verse 10 in the NIV reads, God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. And then he finishes up chapter 12 by introducing Silvanius, the scribe. He says, by Silvanius, a faithful brother unto you, I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. And the NIV ends, stand fast in it. He also uses this sign language here. He calls Rome Babylon, but it's just, he uses she as the church, you know, and then we're going to move down into second Peter. He only has one Old Testament quote, as I mentioned before. This is his last will and testament. There's only three chapters in Second Peter, and the whole thing is of higher level, asking the saints to rise up and to make their calling election sure. He starts out in chapter one to seek their calling election and also to read the scriptures as prophecy. He talks about the more sure word of prophecy. And then chapter two is a warning against these false teachers. And chapter three talks about Christ's second coming and the judgment, and the day of the Lord. And then he gives his concluding farewells. I feel like Second Peter is a personal guide to how to receive our exaltation. Now, most of us won't receive our calling and election made sure until the other side of the veil. This is only given to very few because it's given by our prophets, seers, and revelators in person, in the temple. So most of us will receive these on the other side of the veil, but we need to be striving for it. We need to be seeking this. When the prophet asks us to prepare for our next covenant, this is something we need to be striving for. I want to talk about one more thing generally before I dive into the text. 
this farewell sermon is patterned after many other farewell sermons. In the Greco-Roman world, a farewell sermon was often called a testament. And Peter includes 19 of the 20 points that are supposed to be included in these farewell testaments. It includes the prophet's summons. It includes warnings and blessings and covenants and rewards. It's going to talk about what's going to happen after he departs. And he then shares his imminent death. If you want to go back to the Old Testament, Moses gave one of these in Deuteronomy 31. Christ gave his farewell sermon at the Last Supper in John 12 through 17. Paul gave it in Acts chapter 20. Lehi gives it in 2 Nephi chapters 1 to 4. King Benjamin gives it in Mosiah chapter 2 through 5. You know, they're all over scripture. So let's make sure we take a time to look at this as a beautiful sculpture text that is very carefully stated. Let's dive into chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them who have obtained like precious faith. So he's saying, I'm going to be now writing, not to those that are in needing milk, but I'm writing to those who have received a witness of the faith like I have. And he calls himself a servant once again. And I want to just remind you that Christ came as a servant. He came as the suffering servant. The word servant is the same word as slave. Apostolos is one sent out. So he uses this beautiful title as a servant of God, sent out from God. From chapter 1, verse 3 to verse 11, he talks all about making your calling and election sure. I'll read from the BYU NR translation. This divine power has bestowed upon us all things that will lead us to eternal life. He has called us to his own glory. Verse 4, God has given us the most expansive and honorable promise so that through these things you might share in the divine nature. Now, we use that word divine nature in the restoration starting in early days of young women, uh, young men, um, as, as that we all possess a divine nature. But that is not how it's used in Scripture. Whenever it is used in the New Testament, the divine nature is God. It's Jesus Christ. The divine nature is our Savior. And we only share in that when we are following him. We have a natural man as our tendencies here on earth. But when we come unto Christ, he has invited us to become joint heirs and share with his divine nature. I think it's really beautiful. Chapter 1, verse 5 in the BSB reads, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith. So he's saying, if you want to make your calling and election sure, you've got to build on these building blocks of faith. And then he lists the seven great virtues. I want to read these seven virtues in many different translations. So we have virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, kindness, and charity. Those are all the King James. But as you read them in other translations, you can see how it builds towards a life of consecration. We're talking about goodness and moral excellency, worthiness and virtue. Knowledge is spiritual knowledge. In Greek, it's talking about knowing wisdom. And temperance is also translated as self-control. Perseverance is patience or endurance or tenacious endurance in the new rendition. When we talk about godliness, we're talking about either piety or a consecration. It's talking about holiness here. And kindness is mutual affection or concern for others. And then, of course, charity is love or the love of Christ. These are the virtues that every day 
every day. Do we practice these virtues like we practice our physical fitness or our diet or our studies? You know, I feel like this is what we should be studying. And he says in verse nine in the BYU translation of the um, new rendition, if these things are not present in any person, that person is blind, myopic, forgetting the atoning of his sins from the foundation of the world. You know, the Lord has prepared the way. Let us focus on this and strive for it. Don't be satisfied with just taking the sacrament. Strive to become holy. As he talks about um, seeking our calling and election made sure in verse 10, I'd like to read again from the BYUNR translation. Do everything necessary to ensure your calling and election. Now, if you want to read more about that, Joseph Smith recorded it in section 131 and 132, and I've got all those in my handout and on our slides. But Joseph also spoke about this in sermons, and I'd like to read this one from, as soon as they got up to Nauvoo, it's still called Commerce, actually, then. One of his scribes recorded this. After a person hath faith in Christ, repents of his sins, and is baptized for the remission of his sins, and receives the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands, which is the first comforter, then let him continue to humble himself before God, hungering and thirsting after righteousness and living by every word of God. When the Lord has thoroughly proved him and finds that this man is determined to serve him at all hazards, then this man will find his calling and election sure. And remember the saints had just gone through all the persecution of First, upstate New York, in Kirtland, in Missouri, and th then in Quincy, and they were welcomed in, and now they're starting the malaria challenges. They had been challenged and challenged and challenged, and the refining fire was working. So when bad things happen to you, just remember back in history. Remember to this beautiful sermon by our prophet Joseph saying, the refining is to prepare you for your calling and election. Continuing on in verse 11 in that same translation. In this rich and abundant way, entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be added upon you. And then in verse 13 and 14, he refers to our body as a tent. I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent of flesh, to awaken you in covenant remembrance. For I know that very soon I will set aside my tent, just as our Lord has made plain to me. So it sounds as if Peter has had a vision or an understanding that he is soon going to die. And that's why this is what we call the last will and testament. Chapter 1, verse 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Now, in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 131, Joseph Smith is taught that this phrase from the New Testament, the more sure word of prophecy, does not just mean more prophecy. It is a code word for one's calling and election. It is receiving your exaltation. And Joseph taught more on that in another sermon, but this was a little bit later. This is 1842 to 1843. Though they might hear the voices of God and know that Jesus is the Son of God, this would be no evidence that their election and calling was made sure, that they had part with Christ, that they were joint heirs with him, that they would want that more sure word of prophecy that they were sealed to the heavens and had the promise of eternal life in the kingdom of God. And then having this promise sealed unto them, it was an anchor to the soul, sure and steadfast. They say, even if you've seen the Lord, Joseph says, even if you had all these blessings, that doesn't mean that, you're, you, that you have received the permanent sealing, the more sure word of prophecy, your calling and election. 
That comes after. That is an ordinance. Verse 20 has some additions from the Joseph Smith translation. So I'll read from that, JST. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is given of any private will of man. Now, in the KJV, it says private interpretation. But that word is mentioned 113 times in the New Testament, and it never has this private interpretation as the translation. It's usually 77 times it's translated as in his own, like his own country and his own language or his own voice. So Joseph Smith's change there, the will of man, is is more accurate with the the Greek. Remember at this time, though, um, there's no scriptures of any private interpretation, but there's no closed canon. Even the Old Testament isn't closed. Whenever the word scripture is referenced, they're usually referring to the Old Testament writings, but it's much larger than the Old Testament that we have now. The rabbis closed the Old Testament canon after the fourth century Christians closed their canon because they were worried about people coming in and changing things. Then the Judaic family closed their canon as well. If you want to read more on what scripture was, check Moses chapter 6, verse 8, Doctrine and Covenants 6 and 68, and verse 3 and 4, and section 121, verse 43. But the Essenes believe that scripture was basically the principles that prophecy was from God. And we've got lots on that, and those all come from the time period of the New Testament. 2 Peter chapter 2 then, for the first 22 verses, all talk about these false teachers. It's all warnings. He says in verse 1 in the BYU New Rendition, there also came false prophets among the people of Israel, just as false teachers will intrude among you. And then he gives a whole bunch of warnings in verses 1 through verses 4. They're going to create factions. They're going to deny the Redeemer. They're going to be brutal. They're going to be covetous. They're going to exploit the Christians as merchandise. You know, he just keeps going on and on. And in verses 4 to 22, he says, but God will not spare them or you. And he talks about the judgment and the punishments that are going to come. And he refers in verse 4 to this premortal war with Lucifer and the fallen angels. But no other Christian interprets it that way. You know, this all came because of the restoration. We are so blessed to have living prophets, especially Joseph Smith, who restored so much for us. He talks about Noah's generation and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they were destroyed. And then he likens them to his day and age. Verse 9, he says in the NIV, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and hold the unrighteous of punishment on the day of judgment. Just like Noah was saved and Lot was saved, you will be saved if you maintain your closeness. He continues on in verse 21 in the NIV. It would have been better for them, and he's talking about those who had received their covenants, but then they don't want to be killed, so they deny Christ so that they can avoid going to the lion's den or whatever. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness then to have known it, and then to turn their backs on that sacred command. And then he goes on and quotes from Proverbs 26 about the dog returning to his vomit with such a gross image. But that's how he feels. He's begging the saints to hold true even in times of challenge. And that's why he said this is so applicable to our day and age. You know, if you can follow the prophet, you will be able to maintain the covenant that is needed to see the Lord, to come unto Christ and to be perfected in him. Continuing on in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, in that same BYU new rendition, it reads, Now this, beloved ones, this is the second letter 
note here that he says beloved ones. They've got the gender right. This is to all members of the church. Christianity was completely different than Judaism in this regard. That you may remember the words which were foretold by the holy prophets. And then skipping down a little bit, it says, and the Lord and the Savior issued by the apostles. He's begging them to say, Christ is leading his church still. Follow it. Verse three to four continues on in the Joseph Smith translation. Knowing this first, that in the last days, there shall come scoffers. And then skipping a little bit, he says, denying the Lord Jesus Christ and saying, where is the promise of his coming? And then he explains now in verse four, all things must continue as they are and have continued as they are from the beginning of the creation. He's saying, don't worry that Christ isn't coming as soon as you thought. I probably thought he was wrong. Peter thought he was wrong. But Peter goes on and now talks about the second coming and gives it a much broader sense. In verses 8 through 13, he starts talking about what a thousand years is. But concerning the coming of the Lord, beloved, I would not have you ignorant in this one thing. The one day with the Lord is a thousand years. And the Lord is not slack concerning his promise and coming. So don't think that the Lord has forgotten you. And we don't need to use the word a thousand as literally one more than 999 because a thousand was their largest number in the ancient world. So that's why it's always tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands because they don't have the word million or billion or trillion. You know? They don't have infinity. So that's what they use. You know, this is just the meaning of the largest number they had. Continuing on in the Joseph Smith translation in verse 12 and 13, he reads, looking unto and preparing for the day of the coming of the Lord, wherein the corruptible things of the heavens being a fire shall be dissolved. And then skipping to verse 13, nevertheless, if we shall endure, we shall be kept according to his promise. And remember, whether we're joining the saints on earth at Christ's second coming or if we're joining with the saints from heaven coming down at Christ's coming, if we have kept our faith, we will be able to join with those who worship him. Verses 14 to 18 now are Peter's farewell. And he says, consider also that our Lord's patience in bringing salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He's written in a way that's hard to understand. You know, this is really surprising to me. This is verse 15 in the BSB translation and the beginning of chapter 16, verse 8. But I'm just thrilled that Peter is calling Paul a beloved brother. And he's saying his records are being re recorded. I think by this time, they're calling the writings of the apostles scripture. And he's saying, read Paul's letters, read my letters. Hold on to these things and nurture up in your heart a testimony of Jesus Christ because the coming destruction is serious and we need to prepare for it. And I believe that we can cut short this destruction by living righteously as Joseph Smith prophesied and as John prophesied. And next week, we will read of those prophecies in the, in the epistles of John and in the revelations of John. May God bless you in your scripture study, I pray. In the name of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, amen.